we have a market system like the revolution is not starting tomorrow we are in the system that we are in and we have to figure out a way to get markets to reduce emissions now with that said you know i think one of the really interesting stories behind the cap and trade program so far is that it has been so remarkably successful I mean, we really are on track to reduce our emissions by 20% by 2020, probably more than that. And it's pretty clear that we could do 40% by 2030. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is the fourth and final episode in our series on climate adaptation. This is your host, Mike Hancox, with our special guest co-host, Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission, and our great guests, Jonathan Parfrey, the Executive Director and Founder of Climate Resolve, and Steve Frisch, the President of the Sierra Business Council. When we left you last week, Kate was just about to ask a question about California's cap-and-trade program. You know, and it occurs to me, we, we talked a little bit about the cap-and-trade program and mentioned that it has been under attack recently and actually ever since it was passed. That same program has generated billions of dollars in revenue that has funded climate change initiatives across the state. And it, it seems that one of the major challenges beyond the politics has really been around communications and getting constituents, getting average citizens to see the benefits that they're receiving in their communities from the funding that's been spent to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase resiliency. And I'm curious to hear from from both of you your thoughts on how we can make specific projects like the two you mentioned and, and the many others we've invested in across the state. How do we communicate that these all fit together towards a statewide goal of increasing resiliency and reducing the impacts of climate change? You know, is this a, just a metric conversation? Is it a communications challenge? And, and how do we build more support for this program and for fighting climate change in general? It's an easy question. Yeah. I'm going to give you a softball at this point. Boy, right? what a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Jonathan hit on a really important concept. Well, let's start calling that the, the Oreo model. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first off, of course we need metrics. Of course we need data. We need to be demonstrating what the job creating benefits are, what the ecosystem benefits are, what the water yield benefits are, what carbon sequestration benefits are of implementing all of these programs. But we need a really smart communication strategy that hits people in where their values really are. Jonathan, I'm going to build on your Oreo model. In my community, the thing that made people really 
stand up and take notice is when major figures in the ski industry came out and said, we have to plan for the world past skiing, beyond skiing. Like you might live here because because people in the in, in the mountains ski, but in 50 years, we might not have that opportunity. And to hear people whose basic business model is dependent upon snow say, you know, we very well might not have snow 50 years from now really changes things quite a bit. So, And the same with trout, too, isn't yeah. it, Steve? That, that trout require cold water. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, looking at the climate modeling data for the Sierra Nevada, actually thanks to you that they're doing at UCLA and downscaling that data for the Sierra Nevada, you know, it's pretty apparent that a lot of the things that we have learned to love in all different communities in California are going to change very dramatically. What is the communication strategy around that, Kate? I think it's got to be an all of the above strategy because some people respond to the data. Some people respond to the story. Some people respond to the risk, the threat, you know, but we have to be smart enough to put all of that together and deliver all of those messages and do it in a way that we tell people we can make a difference. We can make a change. We can solve this problem for the seventh generation. Kate, can I jump in and ask a question here? Because I, I am not a Californian. And my understanding is that some resistance to the cap and trade system has actually come from the environmental justice community, that there is some concern that through cap and trade, the communities that are traditionally been the hardest hit will continue to be the hardest hit as a result of that system. Is there, is there any accuracy to that? And is that a, uh, another constituency that needs to be um, brought on board in order to continue support for cap and trade? I would say that that's absolutely correct. That That is one of the challenges. We've made a lot more progress on that side through carving out a large portion of the funding to specifically go to disadvantaged communities. And so we're making progress on that end, but but certainly this idea of a cap-and-trade program generally as potentially allowing someone to continue polluting next to a neighborhood that might have a number of folks that are more vulnerable is not as ideal as just reducing pollution overall. But we have, in fact, through the program, reduced statewide emissions significantly and additionally are generating some revenue that a large portion of is going back to funding those disadvantaged communities. And I'm sure Jonathan and, and Steve both would have something to add to that. Yeah, just jumping in a little bit, you know, in as much as I wish we had more of a government-based economic system, we don't. We have a market-based system. And I think that the cap-and-trade program acknowledges that market-based system and tries to extract cuts in greenhouse gas emissions based on that market-based system. And because of that, I, I think there are some objections to, to markets uh, generally within the environmental justice community. So I'm feeling that this is a, an experiment right now given the sort of the, the limits of our economic system as we have it today in the United States circa 2016. And, and I'd like to see that experiment play out over the next uh, five or 10 years. And, and at that point, we can maybe see if the cap and trade is actually, you know, rung some really deep reductions. But until that time, 
I think it's premature to, to say if it's, if it's worked or hasn't worked. I think we have to continue it as our current system and, and just see where it goes. Yeah, I'm basically where Jonathan is on this as well. We have a market system, like the revolution is not starting tomorrow. We are in the system that we are in, and we have to figure out a way to get markets to reduce emissions. Now, with that said, you know, I think one of the really interesting stories behind the cap and trade program so far is that it has been so remarkably successful. I mean, we really are on track to reduce our emissions by 20% by 2020, probably more than that. And it's pretty clear that we could do 40% 40 by 2030, and that benefits everyone, including disadvantaged communities. We should be looking at coupling that with, if we have point source pollution issues, reducing those exposures too. There's no reason not to look at both the the kind of market-based and the regulatory at the same time. And let's be clear, that cap is, it's not just capped, it's, it's reducing the cap on an annual basis. If we're successful, we can reduce it faster. And that that actually takes some of the risk away from some of those disadvantaged communities if we can if we can reduce that cap faster and we should be trying to do that, you know. And then I would also say I, I really think that there's gotta be a look at with all due respect to people across the state, we, we need to look at what equity really is. There are a lot of disadvantaged communities in California that are not being identified. Yeah, I, I just I just think it's fair to to chime in here to say that we're not just talking about disadvantaged communities. We're talking about communities that historically have always borne the brunt of pollution, right? So when you're talking to communities where life expectancies are 10, 15, 20 years less than other parts of the population, and you're saying, well, let's see how this plays out, you'll get better too. I just don't feel like that's not a marketing message that's going to that plays very well with that community, I wouldn't think. I'm thinking about how to respond to that. I mean, there's kind of a couple of, yes, couldn't agree more. We should not have communities where life expectancy is that much lower. I find it ironic that we measure toxic exposure to certain things and not to others. We don't measure ozone, but we measure PM 2.5 and 10. We don't measure mercury. We're not measuring PCBs on mill sites. I think this is an issue that is going to require kind of long-term figuring out how to reduce exposures in, in all of these communities. Jonathan, anything to add to that before we move on? Yeah. You know, in Southern California, we, we have a lot of air pollution. And there's been a major effort to try to reduce that from stationary sources. So the area is definitely out of compliance with the Clean Air Act. There's no two ways about it. There's been some major gains in Southern California. In the LA Basin, we probably had a third of our days that where there were health warnings uh, issued. um, And now there's maybe one or two days a year. So there's been some major gains, and yet the region is still out of compliance. So the criteria air pollution and its effects, I think, are something to definitely focus in on. The major culprit 
for that is coming out of the transportation sector. So it's a lot of it's goods movement. It's uh, diesel trucks that have a lot of particulate matter, which is also a, a greenhouse gas emitter. It's the, the black carbon is part of the particulate matter and it's cause for concern. And, and that's something that we, we need to aggressively address. And one of the ways of doing it is switching trucks from diesel to uh, natural gas, or even better, to electric motors. The problem with electric motors is that those trucks don't exist. Um, <laughs> Good point. And there are some interesting pilots taking place in various parts of the world where there's kind of a cantilever that they the trucks connect to, and so they're powered by electricity for a few miles, and then they go off with natural gas beyond that. Uh, there are new natural gas motors that are being developed now that emit less than an electric truck would emit if it was charged off of the grid. So they're that much more efficient than even grid electricity. But those trucks are using a fossil fuel, that there's micro particulates associated with them that may or may not have uh, health impacts. The studies aren't definitive on that. But the question is, do we roll out these natural gas trucks, even if they use biogas, which would be a, a real improvement on the greenhouse gas evaluation, do we roll those out now to provide immediate uh, health benefits for those communities over the next 20, 30 years, and then over the next 20, 30 years, our grid will get cleaner and cleaner, and then when we have a new electric-driven truck, the technology finally arrives for us to be able to do that, we can then transition to an electric grid truck. Is that the vision for Southern California? Is that how we're going to clean up our air? Is that how we're going to provide the greatest benefit for the people who are immediately downwind of those freeways where uh, most of the, the harm is being felt and those are predominantly disadvantaged communities. That's a vision that could take place in Southern California. Our environmental justice communities are saying, we want to have uh, zero emission trucks. We want to have electric trucks. And if that takes 20 years, we'll live with the diesel for another 20 years waiting for those electric trucks rather than transitioning to the natural gas trucks that might be available now. And so there's, there is this battle is currently taking place. Now, there are some climate repercussions in this. Um, and I think in California, we've had a, a number of our politicians that have conflated criteria air pollution with climate pollution, even though there is some crossover. It isn't necessarily aligned on a one-by-one -one basis. So I think it's a very complex system. I, I am not going to say that we should immediately adopt these lower-emitting natural gas-powered trucks as, as an alternative. But I think we need to have a real difficult conversation, and it will be a difficult conversation, between the mainline environmental groups and the environmental justice groups on what will provide benefit to the public in the near term and in the long term. And to, to try to come up with a unified view on how to dramatically reduce air pollution in the L.A. Basin. And will that have climate consequences? Sure. Sure will. But I am 
not suggesting that our organization or that I individually have the answer. I think it's an answer that will emerge politically when we get down to having these hard conversations. Boy, I think you hit another really interesting issue here too, Jonathan, which is that there is the speed of, if you want it, adoption of adaptation (laughs) and the speed of adoption of technology. And that there's a relationship between the two of them. (laughs) And that the interim steps, it is going to be very difficult for us to manage expectations while we're going through all of the interim steps to get to a low to zero carbon economy. Like there is a way to transition to an almost zero carbon economy, but it really is going to take 50 years, you know, to really get there to decarbonize industrial processes and all of the transportation networks and products and and everything else. We're really at this point dealing with the low-hanging fruit, which is switch to renewable energy and begin to create lower carbon fuels, right? That this there is a technology curve that we need to be driving. And using pricing carbon to do that is absolutely critical. You know? Thanks, Steve. I got to tell you right now that we, we are using the wrong images in the climate movement. We've been using solar panels and wind turbines as the answer. And in the state of California, the utilities that are producing electricity are operating within the regulatory boundaries of the state. That's right. We are going to get to 50% renewables by the year 2030. Within the next 14 years, the America's largest state is going to be predominantly renewables on its way to 100% renewables. But the greatest source of emission is from the transportation sector. So it, it is the cars, the, the trucks, the, the trains, the planes, and we are not doing a good job at all at reining in the burning of fossil fuel in our vehicles. And the question is where we, we have the, the oil companies that have actually just been in absolute opposition to that. So how do we tackle this issue head on? Because right now, the correct image and the dominant source of emissions is now transportation across the United States. It's been that way in California for years, but now it's across the the United States. So it's no longer the solar panel, the solar module on the rooftop that should be our image. It should be someone in a suit going on their bike to get to work. It should be someone uh, driving an electric vehicle. It should be someone taking a bus. It, it, it should no longer be of the, the electricity sector because they're not the problem anymore. It's now the problem is transportation. Yeah, they're adapting faster than anyone. They're changing faster than anyone. It, it really is transportation, industrial processes, all the rest of these things that we really need to be focusing on transforming. We need a new brand, Jonathan. Can you help us with that, Jonathan? There are some really smart people who can make you go out and see a terrible movie that you never even thought of seeing, and yet you find yourself in a movie theater staring at the screen. 
scratching your head saying, why did I think this would be a good film? We need, we need those people to help sell uh, action on climate change. Well, that's part of, back to the communications question I asked earlier, part of why that's on the, the front of my mind is at the top of my mind is that the oil companies are talking about putting a sticker up saying how much additional cost will be incurred on drivers through cap and trade on, on the price of fuel. And it occurs to me that we're, we don't have a similar branding campaign around the benefits that people are seeing around the low carbon, transit operations funding that's going out there on the, you know, clean natural gas buses on the bike lanes that are coming in. I mean, I think you're right. We, this is a behavioral change process and we need to figure out how we communicate around that better. And, you know, and think about how that rolls out in different contexts. Cause I think you're right. It is the person in the suit on the bus or, you know, the woman in the pencil skirt and heels riding her bike, which I see around downtown Sacramento. But that's not what we're going to see in the San Joaquin Valley or the Sierra Nevada region where the density levels don't support that. So we need a strategy that includes plug-in electric vehicles that are subsidized for low-income residents. We need a strategy that includes transit and biking and walking and figuring out a way to communicate the need for that change and also, of course, to, to fund it as well. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Yeah. And I think you also need to look at, Kate, is um, it, it's not just a transportation issue. It is a housing issue, right? It's it's a question of how we're building our communities because the demand for urban living, for living in places where you can walk to work or take transit or ride a bike is enormous, which is driving up the costs. And our communities are not responding by developing or rethinking their zoning to allow more housing development in the urban areas. So it's, it is a, an issue that goes beyond just rethinking transportation. It's, it's kind of rethinking how we're building our communities and our cities. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, why don't we ask each of you just to – I know this is an incredibly complex subject, but can you just identify what you think the biggest leverage point is? What's the one thing that we could do that would really tip the needle and, and push things in a different direction? Well, I'll jump in, and I'm just speaking for the urban areas – I think if if we took on urban heat island and if we were able to make our cities demonstrably cooler, more livable, a uh, higher percentage of tree canopy, cool playgrounds, cool sidewalks, cool streets, cool homes, cool businesses, if we were able to enact that vision nationally, I think that it would help the public understand that there are things that we can tangibly do. There are things that we can actually get done that make a difference, that actually move the needle on the climate impacts and the higher temperatures that are, that are anticipated. And I think by giving people the taste of success, the taste of accomplishment, they'll then be willing to go further and do more. I think if there was... This is going to sound very wonky, but I have this kind of saying on my office wall, which is internalize the externalities. We externalize the cost of production in climate pollutants, and there's no mechanism 
to make us pay for those externalities in in all of the systems that we that we use we need the price signal and and that price signal needs to be relatively even and national across the entire United States so that it takes away the argument that essentially Californians are being punished for being leaders on climate change. So figuring out how to internalize the cost of production, the cost of pollution in everything that we do, transportation, housing, products, industrial processes, you know, agriculture, all of those things, and then use that as the the trigger to drive, as the lever to drive the change, either the behavioral change or the technological change or whatever it is that's necessary in order to address the problem. The, I mean, talk about blue sky. <laughs> um, you know, it's essentially we need to reform capitalism. I mean, the big issue here is that we need a new economics that deals with these issues, with equity and with climate. And it, and it seems like we, we, we're at a good moment to have that conversation because I think the growing number of people feel that the current economic system, while, while I think they generally support it, they feel like it's not working for them, right? So yeah, uh, I agree. It's a, it's a good time to have that conversation. And it's it's the driver of both poverty and climate problems. This has been a, an extraordinary uh, conversation. I, I've just enjoyed listening to the three of you talk. So, Kate, I want to thank you for uh, doing a great job of guest hosting. It was a, really a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a blast. And uh, Steve and Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for taking so much of your time with us today and also for the great work that you guys are doing. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, guys. And thank you all for listening to this important conversation about climate adaptation. The next three episodes of Infinite Earth Radio, we will be looking at a very special effort to connect economically and environmentally disadvantaged communities with revitalization resources. Then we will be kicking off a four-part series on issues of climate and equity. We hope you've gotten a lot out of this series, and we look forward to seeing you next week on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.